for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the world. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Matt. Hey, guys. How's it going? Long time no see. It's been like, what, three <laughs> weeks, four weeks? Yeah, this has been, uh, in in real time, this has been a long recording break. Well, peek behind the curtain. <laughs> I haven't I haven't seen you guys in probably three weeks, and uh, this, this feels right right now. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> Excellent. The best three weeks of my life. <laughs> um, did you guys want to introduce yourselves? Uh... So he's Dr. Paul Williams, and I'm Dr. Stuart Brigham. Thank you, Stuart. Well, uh, and, and I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Williams, did you want to tell people what this show's about? Well, sure. I'd love to. This is an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. In the interest of full disclosure, we also tend to screw around for the first 10 minutes of the show, just getting to know our guests and um, talking about work-life balance, so if that part bores you, feel free to skip ahead the first ten minutes and, and get to the good stuff. Yeah, I do every time. And I, I, uh, because I know some people really don't like the part that we put up front, which I consider to be for our wellness. Uh, you can look at our timestamps, and that will tell you the exact time where we start talking about the topic. Uh, but otherwise, hang out with us. So please skip ahead <laughs> and go on with your joyless lives. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So anyways, about this episode here, uh, this episode is actually on clinical reasoning. So I, I myself, I'm a proponent of cognitive exercises and self-directed continual process improvement. And today we've got uh, Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal. That's at Gurpreet 2015 on Twitter. He has absolutely zero tweets as part of our <laughs> clinical reasoning series. So this is the first of a series. And so Matt and I and uh, Dr. Williams, we... Uh, had a lot of fun putting this one together for you. Yes, and Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal, MD, is a clinician educator and professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. He studies how doctors think, how they diagnose, how they make treatment decisions, and how they develop expertise. He's considered one of the most skillful diagnosticians and clinician educators in the U.S. today. Dr. Dhaliwal is a distinguished clinician educator who serves as a site director for the IM clerkship at the San Francisco VA Medical Center and an academic intern is teaching in a myriad of settings, emergency department, urgent care clinic, inpatient wards, outpatient clinic, and morning reports. His academic interests focus on the cognitive processes that underlie diagnostic reasoning, clinical problem solving, and the understanding of diagnostic expertise. In 2012, Dr. Dhaliwal was profiled in the New, in the New York Times article, Could a Computer Outthink This Doctor?, he writes for the Wall Street Journal's The Experts Healthcare blog. Dr. Dollywall is a member of the UCSF Academy of Medical Educators and the UCSF Department of Medicine Council of Master Clinicians. He has won multiple teaching awards, including the Alpha Omega Alpha Robert J. Glazier Distinguished Teacher Award and the U.S. and the UCSF Academic Senate Distinction in Teaching Award. He has published over 100 articles in leading medical journals, including the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Dhaliwal has been a visiting professor at multiple universities across the U.S. and in China and Japan. 
Huh. Anything else there, guys? Did I miss? Did I miss anything? Um, <laughs> I think reading that itself was a cognitive exercise. <laughs> yes. So this this is a really great discussion with Dr. Dollywall. It, we start off kind of talking about medical education, um, how to how to teach learners clinical reasoning, and then we sort of go into a little bit about how to teach yourself clinical reasoning and how to build expertise. And we plan, hopefully, on doing a future episode with Dr. Dollywall where we can get really uh, deep into how he trains his brain to, uh, I guess, move towards mastery. So I hope you enjoy this one as much as we did. So here we are with Dr. Gurpreet Dhaliwal from UCSF. Hi, Dr. Dhaliwal. Hi, guys. Hey. And as as we were just discussing, uh, we'd like permission if we could go by your first name tonight, even though we've just met. So we'll call you Gurpreet for yeah. the rest of the show tonight. That'd be fine, guys. Okay. And uh, the first question that we would like to ask you is, if you had to describe yourself in a one-liner, kind of the way that we describe people in the hospital, what would your one-liner sound like? So I'm a um, I'm a 44 year old uh, uh, physician. I'm an internist. I'm a teacher. Um, I'm a father and I'm a husband. And actually, I, I called myself an internist, but I actually spent half of my time in the emergency room and half my time as a hospital. So I'm a bit of a hybrid. And then every uh, Saturday morning from nine to ten a.m., I'm a part time amateur uh, ballers and as baseball basketball player with my uh, two boys. Excellent. Wonderful. How old are your boys? Uh, they are uh, 9 and 11, going on 10 and 12 very soon. So who wins? Oh, wait, hold on. You know what? I think I got those ages wrong. <laughs> I'll double check. I'll double check those and get back to you. Very good father. I think it's, I think it's good radio if uh, you don't know your kids' ages. That's great. <laughs> I don't know mine, but I have five of them. Actually, I, late, late breaking update. Actually, they are 10 and 12. Okay. <laughs> going on. <laughs> yeah. I, I forget my kids' ages all the time. Yeah. Notice how he, he uh, conveniently did not answer that question. So, uh, who's <laughs> yes. better at basketball? Oh, that that is uh, this is every parent has this where the uh, child's athleticism surpasses your own. So now, I used to be able to play my two boys two on one, and I'd be able to hold them. But now the older boy has a clip, so me and the younger boy have to take him on yeah. uh, two on one, and it's not it's, always pretty. <laughs> guys, did you want to ask him any questions before we get into the clinical reasoning talk? Paul, sure. I'm just going to keep it broad. So can you give us a book recommendation, something you've read recently that you've enjoyed or you, you think other folks would enjoy as well? Yeah, I love books. I actually, I don't read any books. I listen to audiobooks and I uh, constantly plow through them on my commute and exercise by doing it. There's, there's a lot of the, I think you guys have covered a lot of the business books on this show, or at least I've heard that over time. And they're all great, like, you know, uh, Heath Brothers and Duhigg and all these other ones. I, I really recommend people start with two classics, which are now 20 or 100 years old. Um, if you're interested in Really succeeding in life, I recommend uh, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. It is almost 100 years old, and the title turns people off. Um, but if someone marketed it today, it would just be, uh, they call it emotional intelligence or something else. It's really like right. how to be a nice person and how to be nice to other people. Um, <laughs> and you can use that in your work life, your hmm. home life, uh, whatever, your civic life. I think it's awesome. Okay. And then the other book. Um, I need to read that, that one. 
I recommend, and this sound, this is not meant to be sort of Machiavellian or money oriented, but everyone should be able to take care of their own personal finances. And uh, the best book for that that I have ever read is called The Millionaire Next Door. Um, and that it was sort of, uh, it's, you can call it a personal finance self-help book, but it it really outlines the, the type of people who build wealth just to have a nice and comfortable life. Uh, and the key to it is actually that they do it in an understated way, uh, that there's no ostentatiousness about their wealth. And they play, it's not so much offense how they're going and getting money, but it's much more defense how they keep it in the house uh, once they make it. And there's just lots of other things that um, uh, those books really teach you about life. Excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of the books. Another, I thought you were going to say the book "I'll Teach You to Be Rich" by uh, Ramit Sethi, which is another good one on on finance. And uh, that one sounds also like it sounds like it's trying to sell you something, but it's actually just very useful, practical advice. It's just the title sounds sounds yeah. a little sketchy. That's Excellent. why I mentioned those two books because I think most people would see those titles and think like, "Oh, that's just for like you know a smooth operator or a calculator." But it's quite <laughs> the opposite. They're like they're like the foundations of a really yeah. enjoyable life where you can focus on things that you care about, like uh, you know remembering your kids' birthdays and, and ages. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, beating them in basketball. Yeah, beating them in basketball yeah. gives you some time to deal with that. That ship has sailed, but it, it was a hope at one time. Yeah, it's never too late to start overfeeding them. I'm just putting <laughs> <Yeah>. that out. <laughs> um is there any medical app or something that you use on your on your phone or your smart tablet on rounds um well i I don't know on rounds probably not i'm actually it's interesting i carry a tablet on rounds but i'm the Mm -hmm. only one on my team that does years ago we had a a reporter who joined my team and and he watched our team and i carry a tablet and on the tablet i have our emr open up to date um the imaging studies uh and you know i have a scratch pad and i have this and then he said what's with your team it's so weird in medicine he's like the old guy carries around the (laughs) tablet and all the young people carry around papers that they're fumbling through and I said, yeah, it's sort of like the pagers that we carry. I just can't explain it, but that's the way it is. And can I show you our fax machine? Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do have a tablet on rounds, but I use it to do all to access all these resources. On my phone, I would say my um, my best med learning app really is. Uh, we were talking about it a little earlier, but I use Twitter. It's sort of this constant feed of medical right. information. I just uh, started using Figure One, which is this app that sends huh. me quiz um you get or it doesn't send you it's full of quizzes where you can quiz your brain and then the one that i um do every morning is called the human diagnosis project that's the right. app i have on my phone along the lines of medical apps and uh you mentioned fax machines one of my residents today or the resident and intern i was working with they were telling me that uh doximity you the, the doximity app you can actually get faxes sent to you through that so i gotta right. i have to get that hooked up but that that sounds pretty useful yeah, yeah, and same thing that. with the uh, the the, the uh, Doximity dialer is very helpful as well. Yes, yeah. that was the other thing they were mentioning. So you can call patients, yeah. uh, and it blocks like, your number. You're at the hospital. Oh yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Never leave here, man. Yeah. You know me. Working twenty four seven. Okay, I think we're um, going to yeah, need so- to move on into the topic. But one more question first, Stuart. What is some great advice you can give our learners or teachers out there? Some advice that you've that you've heard. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, there's so much good advice you get over the years. I think um, one of the ones that I that has always stuck with me, and I think it's going to be a great counterweight to everything else that we're going to talk about on the show tonight, which is ostensibly about getting smarter and sharper in our field, is um, uh, someone who uh, years ago he said uh, we were talking about getting smart in medicine. He said, uh, he said, look around here, son. You know, if someone says son, you listen up. <laughs> he, said, he said, look around here, son. He said. 
everyone here is smart. He said, you distinguish yourself by being kind. Oh, wow. That's oh, I good. love that. That's what that's, <laughs> that's it, powerful. It is, it is so true. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. Very powerful. Stuart, before I interrupted you, Stuart, you were going to be transitioning, I think, to, uh, to the main topic. So in, in our intro, we were talking about this article that was written in New York Times. It, it says, uh, could a computer outthink this doctor? So I just want to ask you, as a springboard into what we're going to talk about, could the computer outthink you? <laughs> uh, it, it absolutely can, and, and we might see that outthinking any of us in our lifetime. Uh, I wouldn't say it could right now. So ultimately, um, and we'll, we'll get into this case here in a second, but what separates in your mind, the clinical reasoning from a from a, a well astute diagnostician or clinician from what a computer does. What's the difference? Well, a computer. I mean, right today, let's you know, a computer hasn't diagnosed, right? Like we have not had a computer do what we do, which is we take a human who has it's estimated sort of has anywhere between two hundred and three hundred ways, major ways that the brain can or can show up with a problem in the human body. And we have to map it onto the sort of 10,000 or 12,000 known listed diagnoses, right? That's what our brain does when it diagnoses. Um, and that's a pretty amazing feat. And to date, uh, there's been no evidence that a computer can do that. Um, computers can do really small parts of the diagnostic process. Like you can get a computer to, um, uh, you know, interpret an ABG or, or read an EKG or something like that. But it it's still not good at saying what's wrong with this human who's sitting right in front of us. Yeah. And so, so how, how do you get there as a clinician? How do you get to the point where, um, now granted, you're saying that, that we as clinicians can do this better than, than computers, but how do you become a brilliant diagnostician or clinician? Yeah, I think, and the goal isn't to be uh, brilliant. It's trying to strive for expertise, and and expertise sometimes sounds like an elitist term. It's not. Right. It's just. It and what's just, the difference? Because the difference, two. the alternative to being an expert, at least in the literature that talks about this, um, isn't trying to be Olympic grade. It just means I'm trying to not be an experienced clinician. So experience is easy to accumulate. Everyone says, you know, how do you get better? And I ask people all the time, like, how do you get better? And everyone says, oh, you just read a lot and see a lot. And I was like, that's not going to work. Every doctor reads a lot. Every, every doctor <laughs> sees a lot. There has to be something else to become to becoming great at whatever part of medicine you care about. It could be running family meetings, um, you know, uh, suturing a wound, diagnosing a case. There has to be some special effort that goes into it, but no one knows it. Um, and it, it turns out it's all these other fields that have looked at how do you get better at a cognitive profession. And that's the part that I think is really interesting is you take the lessons from other fields and then you apply them to ours. Yeah, I think everybody misquotes. And I, I think you might have had this in one of the articles we had uh, that, that you had written that I'd read to prepare for this. But everyone misquotes like you spend 10,000 hours and right. you assume you're going to be an expert, you're going to develop expertise, but you have to be deliberate about it. You, if you're just yeah. in the hospital for 10,000 hours, you're not going to be an expert unless you're right. doing the right things. And that's a big part of what we want you to teach us tonight is like, what sort of things can we be doing to make sure that yeah. we're developing expertise? No, I think you hit it right on the head. 10,000 hours is not hard to accumulate in virtually anything. Um, it's how you spend those 10,000 hours that makes the difference between how two people perform. And again, the two people you should think of are just two different versions of yourself. Um, and there's no, there's no, you don't have to do this. You just have to know that this option exists. And then you can decide if you want to put your energy there. Um, 
So I think there's a lot of lessons that come from other fields in terms of when, how they study, how people get better and better and better. And I think um, maybe should we just jump into some of the methods, et cetera, things? Yeah, or? absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe we should, should we define clinical reasoning? Did we do that for the, for the audience? I mean, I think no, I like think we some people they, might they not could. have even heard of this field. So we're, before we jump into the granular, at a granular level, maybe you could kind of, if someone had never heard of this, how do you explain this to like first year medical students? Yeah, it has, reasoning has a, it has a lot of definitions that are out there. So I think it's almost just a, and I, you can grapple with different ones, but there's just a common sense thing, which is you take all of the data that comprises a patient's problem and then go through a series of mental steps and try to solve it. That is what clinical reasoning is, but it's no great feat to define it because you see it every day. The question is sort of um, what are the steps that go on inside the brain's uh, processes to get to that end point and how do you get better at them? Mm-hmm. It's really it's, it's really problem solving. I mean, if you if there's no name called clinical reasoning, you just look at a doctor and say, well, a doctor is like a repairman or a doctor is just a problem solver. That's what you do. And so you look at how does the brain solve those problems? It, is, is it a skill that, that you think that can be taught or is it more of a of a talent that you're an innate talent that maybe you're born with or something that, you, that just kind of drives you? Uh, uh, that's a great question, but it's probably neither. It's probably not a uh, innate talent um, because I'm sure there's some degree of variation about our ability to problem solve, but it's far more likely how much practice you've had with the domain. So people aren't good or bad reasoners or good or bad problem solvers. It's all a function of how knowledge is built in your brain. Like as an example, like I'm probably a pretty good problem solver if someone is short of breath. Um, you know, I feel like after you know 20 years of seeing patients, like I'm, I've gotten a handle on that. But if if my Wi-Fi went down during this um, conversation we had here, you see, you would call me an awful problem solver. It's not like my brain does or doesn't have a trait or it doesn't. Know how, I don't have the domain knowledge to solve the problem. Right. Um, and sometimes people make that mistake in learners. They're like, they're like, they're not a good reasoner, uh, but it's all content. It, that means that the, the knowledge hasn't been uploaded and it can be their fault or our fault, but uh, it's simply the absence of knowledge and the absence of opportunities to practice with that knowledge that make you good at reasoning or not. So it's not a state or it's not a trait. It's kind of like a function of how much learning you've done in the past. And you were going to, you were about to jump into sort of get into this before I kind of made you step back and, and tell us about the field in general. So where, where do you like to attack this from when you're explaining it to people? Where, where do you think it would be helpful to take this for the audience? I think that I, it's better, you know, clinical reasoning is super broad and um, there are different nooks and crannies of it. People like, like some are the the cognitive psychology of what happens in the brain. Some people like the system one and system two or analytic and intuitive reasoning. But to me, I think the most exciting part of it and, and the part I'm most interested in is simply how you train the brain. Like if you're in the practice of medicine, um, how do you train the brain? And the, the fundamental problem, it's fair to say, is it's not going to be a big secret. If you know how to do this. If you were a professional musician or a professional athlete, you would do it ideally. You'd perform for like an hour or two a week and you'd spend the west rest of the week training, right? That's what professionals yeah. do in all those other fields. The big problem we have is that's totally reversed. We spend the whole week performing mm-hmm. uh-huh. and then you've got an hour or two left in the week somewhere and you're like, where do I do that training time? And uh, mm-hmm. that's the dilemma we, uh, any professional faces. And and then on top of that though, from from everything that I've learned about deliberate practice, that the 
you're performing all week, so you're tired, but then the things that you have to do to get better are not easy. So there's not, it's like stuff that makes you want to procrastinate kind of, you know, cause you're like, oh, this is going to be tough. If you study expertise, it shows you this one thing, like there's never been a field where it doesn't take extra effort to reach your own maximal potential. So that's unequivocal. So the goal of this kind of session we're having or any article on expertise isn't to conceal that it takes extra effort. It's only to make it clear that it's worth it, mm-hmm. um, either to yourself or to your patients. Because you're absolutely right. Sometimes people are bummed to learn like, oh, it's it's a lot of extra hard work. Uh, but if it wasn't, you know, we'd all do that in every domain of our life. You just have to pick where in your life you want to do it. Yeah. And I'm interested if you choose to do it in medicine, that's what interests me. So I just want to say that one of the things that I kind of walked away with after reading some of your your papers is that it it appears as though one of the things that you're suggesting is that if you have sufficient amount of knowledge, that the clinical reasoning will follow. I, I'm I, I suspect that this is only part of of the truth. Could you fill in the gaps on that? Absolutely. Then uh, sufficient knowledge is a precondition, but it's no guarantee to. Um, having great reasoning, right? We we have a word for that and we see it in, in our practice, whether it's with students or residents or even practicing clinicians, that's called someone who's sort of book smart, but not street smart, right? right. So right. it's, it is, um, it doesn't happen often, but it is very possible that you built these knowledge structures. You have these amazing files in your mind around diseases and such, and either by absence of practice, like the environment you grew up in or by some sort of quirk of how you're wired, you have not been able to translate it to the patient right. sitting in front of you because it's a way more complicated environment. Like you may wonder, like, how can someone do amazing on tests? But on tests, multiple choice questions are super sanitized. They're, they have to be. Uh, so they, they're perfect questions and there's clear answers. They're tough, but you can reason to them. But the real world is so complicated that if the brain's not good at sizing up a situation, filtering out noise, weighing two competing situations, weighing risks and benefits, those things aren't uh, tested in, in you know certain levels of school and tests. You can get by until you get to be a book smart, but not street smart. So you're saying we have to throw our students out in the street. Uh, yeah, maybe the, the streets of Cashlack. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's a dangerous place. That, that's where they so, need to be, right? Exactly. I feel like we see this a lot, or maybe it, well, I won't spread this to the group, but I feel like I see this a lot in, say, like clinical competency committees and that kind of thing where we see someone has a great knowledge base, but they just, they lack synthesis. And it sounds right. like that's kind of what we're talking about. Wanted so, to bring that up, but yes. I'm yeah. wondering, so where do you start with this training? Where do you start to actually remediate that? So when you have a learner who's struggling in that arena, it just seems so vague and so hard to teach. How how do you begin training and sort of where, where should we at least initially start, I guess is what I'm asking. Yeah, I mean, it is a tricky thing. You have to define it, right? Because what happens if people see that someone isn't synthesizing a case well, and hopefully you've seen it on multiple occasions before you jump to that conclusion, is that they say, you know what, this person just needs to read more and see more, um, you know, and, and that's the thought. But that's not going to work because they're not practicing the authentic work of what's going on with the patient in front of them. And so you'd have to really figure out, like, was it not good reasoning around that one issue, soul and joint, um, or is it not good reasoning around multiple issues like swollen joint, monocular blindness, unilateral edema? And is it coming up over multiple situations? Because right. you, you may find it strictly an issue of practice, that their brain has not had enough time to practice um, that problem. This, this actually is somewhat of a springboard to a, a, an issue that maybe I've seen, and maybe it's just from my little corner as well, that it appears as though some of the students and residents that I work with on a routine basis, they're they're approaching each problem as a discrete problem, not synthesizing it. And it w- when they're presenting it, it's as if they're looking up one up-to-date article for one thing and one up-to-date article for another thing, and then presenting a plan discreetly without synthesizing into a uh, 
um, just one large overall force for the trees type picture plan. Is this something that's new or is it something that's been around forever? Uh, I think it's been around forever. And I, I bet you all of us had our moments where we did that as well. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning like there, there was a day when, you know, I'm sure I probably presented something where I'm like, hey, problem number one, this person has elevated neck veins. Problem number two, right. they have rowels. Problem number three, they have <laughs> edema. And I'm sure some kind professor pulled me aside and he said, you know, if you group all those things together, we call it a CHF. And I was like, all right. <laughs> but what about the pleural fusion? <laughs> yeah, note to self, next time I see those things together, I'll call them CHF. So the only reason anyone wouldn't group them together, the mind will go for efficiency if it can. It only goes to entropy when it right. doesn't know uh, yeah. that those things aren't naturally grouped. It gets back to this thing about how if if that knowledge was present, there's potential to pull those things together. But if no one ever told you those, th- those three things travel together, uh, you might miss it. How are you giving feedback to your learners when you are noticing these problems that maybe if the knowledge is insufficient, okay, they got to read. But let's say the knowledge is sufficient, but they're just not doing a great job. What's a way that if, if we're on teaching rounds or if we're in the clinic, how can we give that feedback at, in real time to make these people understand? How do you do that without, uh, I guess, hurting someone's feelings maybe? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, hurting the feelings is more the delivery and there's certain ways to give feedback that is both kind and encouraging and choose the moment, et cetera. But if I focus on sort of what you ask people to do, I have moved away from just saying, well, this is the way I like it uh, because students and residents know that there's idiosyncrasies with every teacher that they have um, to really saying, can we do it again right now? And I think that's been one of the most rewarding things I do. So in medicine, oftentimes it's our assessment and plan and the assessment plan didn't go as we wanted. The the student, uh, for instance, didn't, it wasn't persuasive. Like I try to teach them. You're like an attorney making closing arguments. Convince me why this is cholangitis and not acute hepatitis and why it's inconceivable that it's, you know, primary sclerosis and cholangitis. And maybe those things got jumbled up in the student's presentation. Mm-hmm. If I give them feedback and say, listen, I need you to put the fever and the jaundice and the right upper quadrant pain together. Um, and for the past, they, I think I get an affirmative nod because people are nice to their teachers and <laughs> and they, they want to please. And they also want to believe for themselves they got it. Uh, but what I started doing recently, as I said, oh, you got it? Good. Uh, let's take it from the top. And I got that from um, a book that Doug Lemoff wrote um, on Practice Perfect, where he says that's what happens in other fields, like in drama and and, uh, music and sports. The teacher doesn't just say, oh, you got it? Good. They say, let's do it again. Take it from the top. Let's run that play again. Let's run that music piece again. Let's run that play again. Uh, And so as I started doing that, that's how you can rewire. And then they're like, oh, I get it. That's how you string together a sequence of facts for evidence. And then that's what reasoning is, right? So it's going back to sort of practicing the skill instead of telling people about the skill. Um, and what you find is oftentimes then people can do it. They just need one model of how it needed to be mm-hmm. done properly rather than con- continually being told how to do it properly. Those do, are two do different you ask, things. Do you ask your learners to develop problem representations or illness scripts? Uh, problem representations you ask because that's the summary statement of right. what's going on with this patient. You know, I don't stop and use that word, but you definitely teach around that. Like, why did you choose to put in um, immunocompromised here, but you left out fever there? If you put them in, it would change things substantially. But illness script is not something that you uh, ask them to build. That that gets built organically over time. And I, I think this is vocabulary that we're going to have to define for the audience because I've only just recently learned these terms, so I, mm-hmm. I'm going to assume everyone else doesn't know them too. So problem problem representation and illness script, can you talk about those as they relate to kind of teaching and learning? 
Yeah, so these are um, names for sort of structures in the clinical reasoning literature. As I said, we sort of part of what you want to do is you want to break down this black box, what goes on inside of a doc's mind or a clinician's mind. And so at some point, the brain is getting all this information in and it has to synthesize it to say, all right, what is going on with this patient in front of me? And you, you get to a concise statement. It's usually subconscious, but we can make it conscious. Say, okay, this is a 25 year old man with HIV who has a sore throat and a cough. Like the salient features are there. And usually they say, who who is this person? What's the problem? And oftentimes they have to add the tempo, acute or chronic, recurrent or relapsing. So right. then the brain's like, I got it. This is the problem I'm trying to solve. Um, a good rule of thumb is a great problem representation that you could type into Google. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Okay. And you know that, right? Like when you type something into Google, you cut out all the fat and the fluff. You're like, just what are the key search words that yeah. I need? Mm. Um, and then the illness script is the mental file you have in your mind. It's something that you know, um, or in psychology, a script is something that you do on a repeated basis. You have a script for things that you do. Like you have a script for how you go into a restaurant. You have a script for how you drive to work. It's just a, a familiar uh, collection of knowledge is a program for action for your brain. And what we're doing in medical education is we're just building scripts around diseases. And you want things like CHF and pneumonia uh, and glomerulonephritis to just be like familiar old friends. Uh, and you're building that file in their mind. Mm -hmm. um, so it's just like an old friend, like we meet again. Uh, like I see you again, CHF. <laughs> so it sounds like knowledge is, knowledge is important, which I guess is yep. uh, sort of the understatement of the year and exposure is important <laughs> with this too. So there seems to be this big emphasis to start teaching clinical skills from day one. So in the preclinical years, when you just you have no basis and you have no exposure, how how with those learners at that level do you start teaching clinical skills? What's your approach with someone who doesn't really have really a whole lot to work with if we're if we're not missing yeah. words? Yeah, no, you can't. I, I think, you know, people uh, have critiques about knowledge building early on in medical education, but you actually have to build knowledge. You can't reason without a foundation of knowledge. There is no uh, way around it. So you don't have to have a lot of knowledge before you start practicing reasoning. Like as soon as we taught Thank some God. people, <laughs> there's this thing called CHF and there's this thing called pneumonia or there's this thing called cataracts and there's this thing called retinopathy like as soon as you teach them that there's no reason that they can't start practicing the reasoning process of comparing and contrasting and building weight for it but you have to have some knowledge there otherwise reasoning is a it's not possible i wanted to ask about when you're sharing your own clinical reasoning on rounds is how do you how do you showcase that for learners is there is there a way that we can consciously do that on rounds anything special that that you recommend yeah, I think there's um, there's a couple of things about teaching clinical reasoning. It rarely, by the way, is doing any of the stuff that we're talking about here. Like you don't say like, hey, guys, there's an illness script moment or I'm looking for a killer problem representation. That's not how you make a better reasoner. You, you no. can certainly work those things in. Uh, but reasoning, clinical reasoning has, if you're teaching it, there's a couple of things. One is you have this obsessive focus on the next time their brain sees this problem. So most people, you know, if uh, someone underperforms in some way around reasoning, they're like, oh, I wish this time was better. And I was like, a, a clinical reasoning teacher is just focusing on, man, the next time their brain sees this problem, how can I give them an upgrade? Like, can I teach them one thing that's going to allow them to differentiate these two things? You know, there's a point in their algorithm they're unclear on. I sense that. 
I'm going to teach them that if they know that fever and jaundice come together, that changes everything. Um, so it's just really this obsessive focus about the next time. And then the other thing is it has a lot less to do with what. So of course you got to teach facts like, you know, this is what the hepatitis serologies would look like in this case, or, you know, the urinalysis normally has this in the setting of acute interstitial nephritis. Um, but when it gets to the decision-making you're spending a lot more time on the why rather than the what. Like, I know this person doesn't have white cells in their urine, but I want to explain to you that that's just a textbook thing for acute interstitial nephritis. And by ruling out other causes and having a culprit drug, that is more than enough reason to label this person AIN and ask renal if we should give steroids or consider biopsy. So it's sort of, you spend time on the why rather than just the what. Yeah. You know, like, because um, I think a lot of times we give we give learners the answer, right? We say like, um, uh, you know, this is what I'm thinking, but they can't. Mm -hmm. Or sorry, we just tell them this is what we're going to do, but you can't learn unless because the next scenario that they have isn't going to be the same identical right. patient. They need to know our reasoning so they can abstract it and then go to the next patient who has renal failure and say, is this that situation or is it different? Is there utility in teaching the specific nomenclature that we use for clinical reasoning to learners, especially in the early stages? So using phrases like. Um, what is your problem representation and using semantic modifiers? Is there any benefit to actually teaching learners those phrases and that kind of that kind of language? I think that's a great question. And I think there really is a value in teaching them this nomenclature because I think it does a couple of things. One is when you um, give someone vocabulary, it's signals something. It signals that there is a science and a critical process that we're talking about. You know, we used to use, uh, and we still use terms like pretest probability, for instance. And that signaled when we started bringing that into our nomenclature years ago, that there's this thing called evidence-based medicine and quantitative reasoning. So I think vocabulary matters. It just signals that there is a field and a science and a process. Um, and that's one reason I think we should teach it. Uh, it elevates it. But the second reason is actually that I think it's a vehicle for improvement. So if we're thinking of clinical reasoning as something that our learners are starting on right from the first uh, stages of medical school, then they're going to be continually getting better about it. And we need to say, well, where in the process could I have done better? Or where in the process could they have done better? And what we have found is when we've taught the students this language, they bring it right into the conversation. So they're able to say things like, well, you know, I recognize that my illness script for toxic epidermal necrolysis was underdeveloped, or um, that case was really helpful when I went through it. Now I have a better schema for how I'm going to approach dysuria next time. Or um, it's so clear that the way I framed that was why I went down this pathway. But when you labeled the person immunocompromised, it changed the way I was thinking. I'll use my problem that my problem representation last next time. Um, and as a teacher, it sort of warms your heart because you see two <laughs> things coming. One is you they recognize you recognize that they know that how they're thinking is is important. Uh, and the second is that it winds up being this vocabulary for improvement that's shared between the teacher and the student. Um, and I got to say, we've had a lot of success over the years. Some of it's just been organic, like as the language starts getting used, but now it shows up in morning reports, M&Ms, uh, bedside rounds. And uh, instead of having it define, it define it for people, you see that everyone in the team kind of has a shared understanding of it already. I think it's terrific. Yeah. I, and one thing that I was I was talking to my team uh, that that we were going to be doing this interview, telling them about it, and sort of telling them that uh, this is not something that I was exposed to at an early time in training. And it seems like as I got more and more into academic medicine, it seemed that the people at the highest levels were really focused on this. But what I like about what you're saying is that we're sort of bringing it down so that it's like a good habit that people are going to start like from day one, 
which yeah. as you're pointing out is going to be beneficial for everybody patients as well it's it's interesting i think the first time that that i heard it was actually when we were talking to dr centaur about this i don't know if it, if it was in one of our recordings or if it was on the cutting floor but that no, was that, the first time I, i'd ever heard it yeah it was that was in the pneumonia episode where he he was talking about illness script and problem representation right. specifically uh for for pneumonia cases of pneumonia and it's coming back yeah. yeah, it's actually, it's built into our curriculum now um, where I'm at. So particularly the chief's cases, and then I think even the CPCs, they make a point of actually using the specific language and sort of talking about how they approach the case now. So it's, it's becoming more of an emphasis, at least in graduate medical education where I'm at. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've started using it more in our morning reports as well. So actually, the I've changed the, the way that I format our morning reports to where we have four different cases with learning objectives. And the idea is actually to develop this problem representation and then to identify how you're approaching the problem to make sure that you're approaching it from the correct framework and mindset. That's terrific. I think that's it's a really great morning report exercise. And I'd say we do it on a lot of the cases we have as well, because it gets to this truism about solving cases is that you can't get the right answer if the brain's solving the wrong problem. Um, right. And like I said, a lot of times we do it subconsciously, but there's no reason not to put it on the board and literally make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, that You know, the past medical history that matters or doesn't matter, the symptom that does or doesn't matter, whether that sodium of 129 is included as part of the problem or if that's noise that you should exclude because that's distracting. That's exactly it. Gurpreet, one of the things that we were talking about previously is about how to train your brain, how to how to become an expert. And one of the things in, in one of the articles that you wrote was a, a quote by Osler about Osler and his incessant watch. I wanted to ask you if you could elaborate on what exactly that means and, and how this would fit into cognitive training and how to become an expert. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, if we talk about sort of becoming an expert in any field where there's decision making, but that's what it is, right? Making a diagnosis or making a management call is just a judgment. And you're, um, uh, Osler said this in 1905, but it's as true in any field, which is you have to see the outcomes of your decisions, right? So he was, I think, dressing a graduating class. And, you know, he said, um, start early. I think his quote went something like this, start early in your career and always keep track of three cases, the clear cases, uh, the mistakes and the doubtful ones. Um, and then he says, you have to play the game straight. He says something like, uh, mercy for the other man, but none for yourself over whom you must keep an incessant watch. Um, And he says, it's only in this way that you can get wisdom from experience. Um, And I think it captures it that, you know, all of us see tons and tons of patients. I mean, it varies by specialty, but the number of patients and the number of judgments you make about this diagnosis or this treatment um, is uh, dwarfs the number of times you actually learn how that decision went. Um, And what happens, unfortunately, is I think most of us in a purely rational state, if we're like, listen, I called um, that nephrolithiasis and it was a kidney stone, feel like, all right, good. Next time I see that, I'll do that. Um, If you learn like, man, I called that nephrolithiasis, but that was a mistake. That was a renal infarct. Then next time I see a patient like that, I'm going to start thinking differently uh, about what might be causing it. And then um, for the huge number of patients you never see, this is the problem. For the huge number of patients you never see, it can be anything. I signed out service. It was the end of my shift. I was covering on the phone. I told them to go to the ER and you never know what happens. Uh, what do you guys think the brain does to all those? Where does it file it under? Got it right or got it wrong? Probably a slam dunk since we're, we've been talking basketball. Like, yeah, it's like, count it. Yeah, I got that one. <laughs> That's exactly it, man. You, you think you're just you're firing up threes all day. Uh, but there's probably a ton of bricks and air balls in there that you just don't know. <laughs> you just yeah. don't know about. Um, right. And 
what I learned first when I started moonlighting, I did um, 10 years of moonlighting at a county hospital in addition to my early faculty years, um, but even on my daily job now, is that there are so many, you get either completely wrong or partially wrong. I signed out um, a seven-year-old man who had severe left upper quadrant pain. I really, he was screaming like mad, had terrible pain. I thought it was going to be something vascular or perforation. It was awful. And I had to sign him out at midday because I had other duties in the afternoon. Um, And I put him on my feedback list. And sure enough, by the time the end of the day was done, I found out it was just severe urinary obstruction, just a massive bladder obstruction. And inexplicably, it was in the left upper quadrant. But it's not the first time that I've been faked out with an acute abdomen from bladder obstruction. I've also had bladder obstruction make me think someone has cancer, which has been incorrect. Um, But the point is, if I didn't uh, check in with my colleague and find out what happened, I would have left my ED shift being like, nailed it, another acute abdomen taken care of uh, (laughs) by Dr. Dollywall, but because I checked back in, I was like, all right, note to self, didn't need the CT. So I actually made a mistake in ordering a CT and note to self, um, a bladder obstruction this size can do it. He had like 700 cc's when the Foley went in right away and more kept coming. Um, right. So it's just the benefit of uh, finding out what happens. And it's, the point, too, is all these common cases. It's the common cases that you find out you didn't get right. So often those are the ones you're not apt to follow up on. You know, if it's something super cool, like did that guy wind up having an MI or was it this unusual um, you know, endocrine disorder? We all, will, nerdy internists will generally track those cases. But it's much more like whiffing, like giving giving vancomycin to uh, venous stasis or um, <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> you're like, man, I really shouldn't have done that. You only learn when you check on your work. Yeah. In your article in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, on premature closure, not so fast, the quote in there that I I actually highlighted that says, being wrong feels exactly the same as being right. (laughs) That's right. I I got the exact same thing, Stuart. That's fantastic. (laughs) That's the challenge with all this um, stuff about sort of being aware of, you know, system one or system two, is that the brain doesn't have this early error detection system. Right. It feels just everything sounds like it's totally logical until the moment you're very clear that it's not. Um, And so it's hard to, we do our best to sort of monitor in the moment, but the much more likely strategy is trying to learn as much as you can, because if you have a busy clinical practice, your brain will be in that situation again. Um, But to share with you, sometimes it takes multiple reminders. This is not the first time I've been faked out by a, a distended bladder, like presenting like an acute abdomen. And so the the question is, am I going to get fooled the second time? You know, what George Bush says, some like, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And then something like, I oh, was something along those lines. Like, the second time it's on me. It made less sense than that, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little like Rumsfeld's quote, but I can't remember. <laughs> How do you recommend, is it built into your EMR that you have some way that you're, you're tracking these people? Or are you doing it on your own in, in like some sort of a, a document or a spreadsheet? Yeah. So the, the, I think the best way it's done, I've had all sorts of ways over the years, paper and tablet um, and you know, EMR. Our EMR, I'm at the VA, so I'm a full-time VA doc, and our EMR doesn't allow us to tag easily. But there's mm. certain systems I see that are awesome. You can send an email to yourself. You can create shadow lists. So for all the trouble that the EMR causes in our job, I think the one thing is that it does. And I think you might need someone young to show you how to do this, but it does have the potential to be a learning tool as well if it reminds you to check on patients. Hmm. That's that's great. I should ch- separate this. You know, There's certain patients you need to check on because it's your job. Like They're your patients and you're following up on them. So that's different. That's a moral obligation. Then you definitely... Yeah. 
need to have a 100% reliable tracking system. But I'm talking about the many patients that we pass on to someone else or sometimes have this optimistic hope that the somewhere in the ether things are going to work out. Um, those are the patients that I think it's really uh, beneficial to track. Is there any sort of I was telling a colleague that you do this today and they were like, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to start doing this. And they said, well, are you worried like that you're going to be accessing patient charts when you saw them two weeks ago? And, you know, is that going to be a flag to somebody? I don't know if that's something we worry about. Is that something that you worry about? So can I tell you something? There's actually two places where this comes up. One is um, there are certain healthcare systems where docs do get flagged for checking charts I think the computer must know or big brother in the background must know if they're not directly involved with the care of that patient. And I've heard that Mm -hmm. more times than I ever expected. The other thing that's interesting actually is in the med ed literature about should students be allowed to track patients after they're done taking care of them. Uh, And there was a couple interesting articles in academic medicine sort of on the pros and cons of that. Uh, And even things like, you know, should you have to ask patients, can I check your chart after you're gone just for my own learning? Um, To me, I think the benefits so far outweigh the risks um, that I'm a strong proponent of it, but it's worth knowing that there's, you know, some counterwinds to it. Okay. So that's, that's a caution to the audience. Maybe check, uh, check with your health system or just before you start doing this, if, uh, if you suspect your health system might crack down on you for this, but I think it's, or, or, or maybe, maybe don't check and just, uh, ask for forgiveness. For forgiveness yeah. Not <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, we'll let yeah. them decide who, which way you want to go about it. I, I wonder what the law says about that, only because it, it seems to me that if I were to be called as a, uh, if someone were to take me to court over checking their chart because I wanted to see what the outcome was, it would seem as though that that is, that's ultimately beneficial, although the law doesn't always make sense, so I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, I mean, I love this area, so I've read about it in detail. There's even these other dimensions to it. They're like, what if you, or let's say the student or you, but what if you check the chart out of curiosity, you just want to learn about it, and mm-hmm. you discover that there's a, a lung nodule that no one has seen, or that there is oh, yeah. a path report, right, um, right. but you're no longer the doctor of record, but there's clearly a fingerprint that you've checked the chart and have seen that piece of data, Um who owns the responsibility at that time? And you're like, hey, man, I was just there for learning. Uh, <laughs> but now you know something and you can't, you don't know if anyone else is owning this or not. So it's, there are, there are nooks and crannies from it. The learning is undeniable. The, there's more, as I've studied this more, there's more complexity to it than meets the eye, but I'm still a strong proponent. Are there any other, any other things you're doing for self like improvement to give yourself feedback that, that you can also recommend to the audience when they want to become, uh, or experts, experts in diagnosis or management decisions. It's whatever decision or outcome that matters for your job, right? So as internists, a huge part of our job is what's the diagnosis Mm -hmm. this person has. Once Mm -hmm. you get the label right, it doesn't make life is not easy, but it narrows the potential problem space to a much smaller one. So I spend my time on, can we get the diagnosis right? Um, It's also a quality and safety issue. You know, diagnostic error is a very big quality and safety issue. Like uh, studies show consistently, you can go from autopsies to electronic medical records to malpractice that we get the diagnosis right about 85% of the time, which is pretty good given all the complexity that we have. Uh, But your goal, if you're trying to be expertise, is to say, well, what do I do to get myself to 90 or even 95? Like, what would that look like? That's the thing that sort of interests me. And it's, of course, for our own own sake, but also for our patients. Um, So feedback is the cornerstone, no question about it. Like, there is no biological or industrial system that gets better without feedback, and the brain is no exception. So it's not like we get zero feedback. You know, you definitely can 
colleagues sometimes tell you what happened to your patients or you sign a chart or you, you know, you walk into an M&M and see your patient presented, like you get feedback, but it's sort of this mix and match of things. And it, the whole key point is to create a system of your own where you can track. Awesome. Stuart, do you want to, do you want to try to rapid fire, go through some of the questions from social media? Um, yeah, we, we, we can. I just, just want to ask a question about heuristics in general. So yeah. heuristics in general, so the, the, the cognitive short, shortcuts that we make, would you consider these to be more beneficial or harmful to the clinician for accurate diagnosis? Uh, they're net beneficial. If they wouldn't, we wouldn't use them. So on balance, heuristics are very beneficial ways that we sort of shortcut through the complex environment that we're in. You know, system one and system two, which is kind of the, the dichotomy between working in your intuitive mind and your analytical mind is sometimes tied up with the idea. It's more a presupposition, actually, that in one mode, we make more cognitive mistakes. Uh, and sometimes those are labeled heuristics and biases. The problem is those same path to mistakes are the same path to success. So all of our decisions we make use those very same heuristics. We just put the label on it when things go awry. <laughs> So, you know, if I um, if I see someone and they got crushing chest pain that's right in their left arm and I say, you know what, that's an MI, um, then it's called diagnostic accuracy if it's turned out to be an MI. Um, but if I say he's got crushing chest pain right in his left arm and I call him an MI and then it turns out that's a dissecting aneurysm, then it's called premature closure. Yeah. So, or, anchoring. or anchoring, you're right, yeah. anchoring, you can, you can pull out many words. So, And that, that's what the study in the BMJ quality safety showed, that if you show doctors the exact same scenario up until the very last moment, which is the outcome, if things go awry, they find three or four cognitive biases. But if mm. the diagnosis is correct, then they struggle and they say, oh, I can find one bias in there. And that's because the path to being right is exactly the same path to being wrong. And they feel yeah, the same. And it feels the same. Yeah, they, <laughs> and they feel exactly the same. <laughs> well, and so one of the social media questions we got, one actually from, if I remember correctly, the illustrious G. Bang, um, is someone who asked, is it, is it possible to de-bias? And is that even something that we should be doing if that is sometimes, if, on that, that balance the more positive thing, if it actually gets you where you need to go? Yeah, this has been a point of uh, debate for a long period of time, and it still is an ongoing debate. Can you de-bias the mind? Um but I think the to date, it, there really hasn't been convincing evidence. John Sherboneau and, and Jeff Norman and others have done studies trying to see if you can. Now, to be fair, they're not, they don't believe that's a promising technique, but their studies have also shown that it doesn't work to sort of say, hey, if you teach the mind about these heuristics and biases, or if you do exercises where you make the mind slow down, ostensibly to avoid those heuristics and biases, that you'll do better in diagnostic performance. There are some other studies that try to show it, um, but overall, there's really no convincing evidence that we can undo the wiring in our brain just by so, knowing it. So, so going slow and using, quote, system two does not necessarily improve diagnostic accuracy from what you're saying? That's correct. Yeah, the, I think the upshot of a lot of the studies is going slow just makes you slow. Um, and <laughs> And that's it. And you will, uh, the more calibrated things is to build knowledge structures and, and insight into the situation where you're like, I know when I can and should go fast. And I know when I can and should go slow, but not that you have an ability to control system one versus system two. There's no real way to know that you're in either one of those systems. They're just two straw mans. They're like, um, 
it's sort of like COPD has emphysema on one end and chronic bronchitis on the other. And, you know, most people are blend between the two. Our brain is always operating in those two realms. Like uh, right when you see a case, you probably are using a lot of intuitive reasoning, like the early hypotheses you make. And then as the case is getting more complicated, you're probably switching to um, analytical reasoning to try to test if this diagnosis or that diagnosis is more likely. But you have no conscious control of what mode that you're in. Guys, any other questions from Facebook or Twitter? Yeah, there uh, sure. We, we've got a couple more. Um, there's one question about basing your decisions on evidence. And there's a concern that if the evidence itself has many conflicts of interest, how, how would you approach that that concern? Um, do you mean so it's conflicts of interest or just conflict? There's conflicts within the evidence. Uh, conflicts within and of interest. Let's let's okay. make it as complicated as possible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess another way to say it, but right, is like the evidence is imperfect, right? There's no doubt. The medical literature is tremendous. It's just part of your decision-making process. So I think there are there's a small sliver of the decisions where we make where the evidence is crystal clear. Like someone's having a heart attack, give them aspirin, right? Like there's no amount of reasoning or judgment, except for maybe the exclusion of a simultaneous intracranial bleed or something that would make <laughs> you think, you know what, I, I know better than that study uh, but right. for the vast or those studies but for the vast majority of things oftentimes you do need to know about what population was done how strong the evidence was the truth is our brain does not do that i know you probably had i think you guys have had very erudite ebm people on this program who could speak much more to studying it i think most of our brains do this you're just like you know i've read this enough times i've heard it enough times the people around me do this so i'm like note to self ace inhibitor is good in heart failure or low ef and i will do my best when i see that problem to put an ACE inhibitor on there. The truth is if you really scrutinize evidence, it all has flaws to it, right? And the guidelines are the same thing. There's many, many guidelines for the same problem that conflict. Um, so I don't, it's interesting. I find the evidence super helpful. I'm glad people are doing these great studies. Um, in a few cases, it's binding and unequivocal. And in the vast majority of other cases, it's, uh, you know, it just feeds into the decision-making process. I'm very grateful for the people who do those studies to give us some guidance, right? Otherwise we'd be left sort of, guessing or using pathophys alone. It tells us a lot of what we shouldn't be doing and, and things that could be harming patients. So that that's always very helpful too. Precisely. Like that, when I say knowledge is king, like that's the stuff that you upload into knowledge and you have aware of. And at some point after you've practiced it enough times, it becomes your intuitive knowledge, mm -hmm. like to give, you know, give aspirin and a heart attack or, um, you know, give steroids and, and epinephrine and anaphylaxis. Those things become, they just become ingrained. So uh, on, on the flip side, so w once you've seen all these cases and it becomes intuitive, how do you embrace the possibility that there are still zebras out there and, and avoid overtesting? How would you approach that? I, the, I mean, you're always the, the key thing is you want to understand that their zebras are there, but you don't want to perceive that they're likely. So one of the benefits of practicing a lot and, you know, I'm uh, nearly full time practice five to seven days a week is that you get this amazing sense of what the common is and all the variations around the common, right? So one of the benefits of, you know, if you have a busy practice, you do tons of cellulitis, tons of cholecystitis, tons of um, uh, nephrolithiasis, tons of pulmonary embolism. And it, you don't get perfection in any of those diagnoses, but you start to understand there's a bell curve of the distribution of how those things present. And you start to say, you know what, sometimes CHF doesn't have RAL, so that's okay. It's not a deal breaker. And, and you know, sometimes uh, people with temporal arthritis can have pain in the back of their head instead of the 
front of their head. I didn't know that, but I saw it once and now I know it. And so you understand these variations around the disease, but at some point you're like, you know what, this presentation is too far afield. This is not within the variation that my um, time and practice and my reasoning and my discussions with people have told me and my experience that this could be this disease. I have to think of something else. So you, I mean, we learned to think about zebras early on. I think the thing that uh, practice teaches us is the restraint not to worry about them because it's a better match with an uncommon variation of uh, common disease. That's the joy in medicine, I think, is knowing the common stuff and all its variations rather than learning, uh, picking up the rare stuff, which has its moments, but you can't get you can't get daily joy waiting for the rare stuff. <laughs> Stuart, any other questions before, from Twitter or Facebook before we get some take home points? Uh, we've got a let's see. Um, is there any difference in diagnostic reasoning from the physician standpoint or on an interprofessional team based environment? Is is there any difference between those two? I know I, in, in the same way, the only thing is uh, different professions are trained to solve different problems, right? Reasoning is solving problems. And so we spend an inordinate amount of time focusing our efforts on like what's wrong with this patient, right? And then setting a treatment plan. Other uh, people, uh, people who are part of the interprofessional team have that in their domain. And what I really like, I'm in, active in the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine, is opening up doctors' ideas to the possibility that the other professionals on the team pick up stuff that we don't. For instance, there um, there was a case that was published in the journal Diagnosis recently of the physical therapist picking up uh, vestibular disorders uh, that the doctors weren't able to pick up because they're paying attention to these patients. Same thing, they have outstanding domain knowledge. Or we had a case at Resonant Report recently where the team was dealing with a patient who had this multi-system disease like murmurs and splinter hemorrhages and pancytopenia and it looked all in some bleeding and it looked all the world like it was endocarditis. And then the nutritionist came in the room and she's like, hey, I noticed that you're not, um, uh, you know, you're not eating the oranges uh, and, and that we leave on your tray every day. And the person's like, oh, I, I never eat fruit because it, it affects my GERD terribly. Uh, <laughs> and that was the key to diagnosing scurvy. It was a nutritionist observation oh around what this person has. So part Excellent. of it is docs being open uh, to what other professions can bring um, and actually inviting them to be part of the problem solving. Because I think historically, we sort of thought it's just our job. And then the last question is from a medical student. It says, uh, I feel like our USMLE exams tend to bias us towards premature closure. Any thoughts on how we can test necessary knowledge while still encouraging students to think outside the box? Um, I'm not sure. I guess would, I'm not sure that I would agree with that, that tests make you think about premature closure. Tests are just chances to access your knowledge. I'm, I must say on balance, I'm very bullish on tests. I think tests are terrific. Not that you have to pay the fee for them, not the anxiety that it causes, but if we're in the business of training the brain, tests give you this chance of what's called retrieval practice. The more times your brain gets to access information, uh, the better. And if it can access it through a test, um, that's just extra practice. Uh, so I'm not sure it does premature closure. I mean, it makes you get the right answer, but like you said, you wouldn't call it premature closure if the answer is right. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they mean it's sort of neat, neat and tidy. And so it makes it feel like, uh, you know, medical care is monophasic and in one fell swoop, it's done when in real life, it's obviously drawn out and complicated. Maybe that's what they meant or I don't know. I, I think it's more of a student who's asking a question who doesn't like take tests anymore. <laughs> <laughs> he's hoping you will abolish tests for for all medical well, so. no i'm the remember I, I, if our goal is to train the brain you actually want you want to 
figure out how many ways in my life can I test myself? It's quite the opposite. Like, like I said, our job is busy. We go to work for eight to 10 hours a day, right? And if you have the energy one or two hours a week to, to train your brain for this job, then one of the key attributes is not how much reading I'm going to do. It's actually how much testing I'm going to do. So I would really encourage people who, um, uh, like to read medicine, and I love to read medicine, to spend a huge amount of it um, doing what's called retrieval practice, where you bring things from the background of your brain to the forefront of your brain and test how much you really know. So that's, you know, like I like I said, I do the, the human diagnosis uh, case of the day every morning. There was a, a woman in a seminar I talked to, a doctor, she says, I love Facebook, I'm addicted to it. So before I get on my Facebook every night at the end of the clinic, she's like, I always make myself do the Medscape quiz of the day uh, before I can check my Facebook feed. She has a forcing function to make herself do it. Um, if you read an article, read the CME questions at the end. Um, you really want to find ways to sort of test your brain, not just reassure you that, that you know stuff. You know, I can read an awesome article like on Sjogren's syndrome in the New England Journal of Medicine. And I, I feel like, oh, I got it. Um, and then uh, if you take the quiz just the next day on the CME questions, you'll realize that not much of it stuck or not as much as I had hoped. But the act of taking the quiz helps me relearn it. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, spacing and all that stuff. We, we, that's, that's for another episode, but I do want to ask you for your take home points. Cause you've given us so much of your time and this has been great. So what would, what would be a few take home points you want the audience to remember? Yeah, I think that um, the key thing is that there is a difference between uh, experience and expertise. Um, and experience is hard enough to accumulate, so that's not an easy task. But expertise, which just means your own uh, personal best, takes an extra effort. And it's just there's a menu of options for things that you can do uh, to go for it. I would say that and my second take on point is the number one that you should do is track your patient's outcome. Um, there is no no more humbling uh, thing you'll do, but there's no better form of continuing medical education around. Um, uh, and then the third thing I would say is, you know, that uh, a lot of times we were talking, we started talking about computers and stuff and people are really interested in like, could a computer do our job? And people love like, you know, natural language processing and artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. And I think that's, that's outstanding. Like that stuff is amazing, but I don't worry about machine learning. I tell people, you have to figure out how you're going to try to be a learning machine um, and keep that up well after residency throughout your career. Um, because people, you know, a lot of times docs are saying, you know, medicine's tough and there's, there's burnout, lack of um, satisfaction with the job. And a lot of those things are, uh, you know, they're very structural, but I was uh, motivated by Daniel Pink. You know, he wrote this book, Drive, speaking of yeah. books, uh, uh, that says, what do people really like? Like what motivates them? And he talks about autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Um, and, you know, there's no doubt that doctor's autonomy is being eroded for all sorts of structural reasons. Our purpose is unwavering, right? That's our true north. Like, that's why we went into this to take care of patients and have this intellectual stimulation while doing it. And so the counterweight uh, to that loss of autonomy is mastery. Um, if you really love your craft and, and get motivated by mastering it, um, I think that's one of the keys to the joy of medicine. Well said. I think that's it. So I'll tell you just you know, topics we can talk about next time. But sort of because I didn't do the whole portfolio of like how you become sharp. Like this is when I um, do development on it. But like the, just so you know the portfolio, it's uh, feedback. It's uh, reading cases in a simulator way. Um, there's a, a technique that's called micro learning. Quizzing I talked about. So I, we did get to quizzing and testing yourself. And then the other one is sort of learning from consultants. So there's a whole suite of um, activities that I do. That's part of my training program, for lack of a better word. Um, so if you want to either um, 
uh, whatever time you want to do that, but just so you know, that's how that fits in the larger thing. Because I think we did some med ed and then some train the brain. Yeah, I I would love to do that. I would love to do that. All right, guys. Thanks, guys. Enjoy where yeah. you are. So we'll, uh, let me know how this goes. If I have to fix anything or recut, or if I said anything uncouth that we should fix. <laughs> I think <laughs> we'll, you know. we'll be okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Cool, guys. See ya. Thank nice. you. Great. Good night. Good night, guys. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, mm-hmm. bringing you a little knowledge food for your raid hole. You can yep, find me. show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. And you can also sign up to receive our weekly mailing list where you will receive a PDF copy of our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We're committed to providing you with high value, practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your input. So send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. You can recommend a future topic or tell us what you love or hate about the show. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto at Dr. Watto on Twitter. (laughs) And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham at Brigham SK. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Do not follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Okay. Uh, Everybody, please follow Paul and please end all your tweets with the hashtag where's Paul or got Paul. Do not do that. That's the thing about this computer. The brain's an amazing thing. I mean, the the you know the computer stuff is awesome, but that brain is epic. <laughs>